This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Mike McKee. It is April 19th, 2013. Uh, we're conducting this interview at Cinder Garden here in beautiful West Philadelphia on Baltimore Ave. Uh, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hi, Mike. Hello, Joe. Hi. Hello, Philly. So let's talk about when you were just a little baby. When I was a baby. Uh, right. Where were you a baby? Uh, I began my baby career, and uh, I was born at Lankadaw Hospital. Uh, my family lived in Ardmore, Pennsylvania at the time, uh, home, to, home to Little Gentleman, if we're going to contextualize this in okay. punk. Very good. Uh, I was born in 1976, Bicentennial Baby, great year to watch the fireworks in Philly, apparently, although I missed it. Um, <laughs> you were a little small. I was a little young. Uh, yeah, I don't know, I was born in Lankadaw Hospital. Uh, I came a bit early. Um, yeah, I spent a good amount of time in the hospital before I decided to come home. Uh, you did bake a little longer. And I, yeah, like, exactly. Like a fine piece of chicken. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so yeah. you grew up in Ardmore? I grew up in Ardmore. Um, yeah, and... Yeah, you know, uh, in one hand I would say I'm, uh, I grew up in Ardmore. I was very lucky in that my family... I, I don't really have like an NPR... Uh, go to plays, go to theater kind of family, but we we always had family here in the city in, in like, uh, the Juniata neighborhood and in South Philly, so um, I was always, like, seeing the city was always something I was used to mm-hmm. since I was a little kid, which I I think is different for some kids who don't, who, who are seeing an urban environment for the first time when they're, like, in high school, right. and they can bug some people out, and um, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but I feel like by the time I was in, you know, sixth grade or something, me and my friend, like the, you know, you would go to the, the city. To yeah, and it made an imprint on you yeah. by that point, right? Um, so what, what's Ardmore like for those, you know, who, who live outside of the area you might not know? Sure. Uh, well, Ardmore is, uh, Ardmore is a pretty interesting place. There's been, like, a lot of interesting, like, anthropological and sociological studies about Ardmore because Ardmore is uh, a, one of a string of suburb towns in the northwest. I guess it's just the western suburbs of Philadelphia uh, on this particular particular train of suburbs that's very, very moneyed. Um, a, a whole lot of money. Um, and Ardmore and Narberth are two towns that are next to each other that are um, that are very unique in that they have different makeups uh, in terms of who lives there and the kind of money that is there in the other places. Um, I'm not saying this to like cry poor mouth or claim like urban cred. No, no. Um, but they are interesting places. Like... Uh, Along the whole main line, Narberth and Ardmore, I think, are the only places where there's um, any sizable minority of Catholic residents or black residents. Um, in fact, and like the neighborhood where me and Sean Agnew grew up in Ardmore is like uh, the same kind of like brick row buildings or like brick apartment buildings that you would see a lot of in, through West Philly. Um, and that is a different architectural makeup and a different racial makeup than any of the other cities on, or towns along the main line. Um, so I said that was kind of interesting. It was a place where you, there were all sorts of folks, uh, different kinds of shops, different kinds of things going on. Um, by the time I was in high school, the main strip at Ardmore, which is called Lancaster Avenue, which is the same Lancaster Avenue that uh, continues to you know, into West Philly, where there's the fake house and kill time and Stalag 13 and everything, um, had a zipper head. 
uh, Zipperhead chose to open. I didn't uh, realize there was another one outside. Yeah, Zipperhead and Repo Records were both there. Uh, Zipperhead obviously started on South Street and then opened up this secondary location for only about two, three years, I think. But uh, the original Repo Records was just further out in a town called Bryn Mawr. Um, so that was sort of like part of our, you know, my friends growing up, like part of our Saturday would be like, oh, you walk up, you go to the record shop, or you take the, the 100 into the city and go to the record shop. So um, Ardmore was neat as a kid into different kinds of things, I feel like, because it was a, it was an easy launching point to either have a little bit of edginess to it and uh, edgy culture to it if I stayed near my house. Mm-hmm. And it was also very easy to get down to the right, city. Right, right. Yeah, nice. So prior to your discovery of punk, what, what sort of person was Mike McKee? What were you interested in? What was your life like? Um, let's see. I was... Uh, I was into music for... I was always really, really into music. Uh, my family is... I wouldn't say they have very wide tastes, but they were very into the music they liked. Um, my mother and father, I guess, were friends or friends of friends. Their their crew growing up were uh, were friends with Val Shively, who runs R and B Records uh, in Upper Darby. So, um, you know, R and B and oldies and like what is, people think of as Northern Soul was like a big thing for them. Um, and my parents weren't necessarily the biggest crate diggers, but friends of the family were. So, um, you know, when we'd have our Christmas party or you know a barbecue or something, there'd always be these guys there who would just yap forever about these super obscure oldie songs and uh, I got super into oldies that was like my first musical love I would collect the records and um, collectible records actually was in Ardmore as well they're like a uh, you know like in in hardcore there's lost and found which sort of puts out you know these Mm -hmm. re-releases collectibles I think does the same thing where they're reminting records that are uh, you know you're not going to find as much so um, I was super into oldies um as most people from Philly, I think, can attest, Power 99 in the late 80s was an absolute powerhouse of cool music. <laughs> yeah. um, rap was so fascinating to me and my friends. Uh, we used to pretend we had a radio station where we would, you know, tape record the, the songs that we liked on the radio, and then we would talk over it and be like, you know, you're listening to blah, blah, blah radio, and that was cool, you know, jam on it. And uh, we would trade our tapes back and forth, and... So I had a couple of friends who lived on the same block as me uh, who were also really into music, who got really into rap, and we would go down to, I remember taking the L, we'd go down to Market Street and, you know, watch people break dancing like on the cardboard, which is like a big thing, and we would seek out the fat shoelaces, because then you were like the coolest kid at your grade school if you had those. What was the shoe for you? The what? The shoe? Oh, um... What was the shoe? I, I don't know. I, I was the kind of kid who, like, I think I, I think I thought it was okay and cool to wear Keds with, like, the little p- hole for the penny. <laughs> like, so I was, like, a fashion disaster. My, uh, I remember some, some cooler, more fashionable kids used to make fun of me and call me Maniunk Mike. Like, I was a bit of a, a fashion mess, which is funny because... Hey, what's wrong with Maniunk? I live in Roxborough. <laughs> well, although, I mean, to call someone Maniunk something now is, like, means something completely different. Yeah, but at the time, yeah. they were like... You are working class white trash. You know? and I was like, oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I was always super into music. Uh, we would make these mixtapes. I remember our, uh, me and those same kids who lived on, on the same block as me um, had our first band. 
uh, we didn't know how to play instruments, but we, you know, we build them. We thought, you know, if you have a rubber band over a shoebox with a hole in it, that is a reasonable approximation of a guitar. It's very DIY. <laughs> I'm sure we sounded at least as good as some X records, the X record. Um, you could probably make a Jews harp, <laughs> also out of a rubber band and your tooth. Uh, no, you know, in lieu of that, we would put the wax paper over a comb uh-huh. and hum on it, you know, instead of a kazoo. Uh, we were called Air Supply, briefly. Huh. As so you, now there was a band, I think. We, no. we quickly ran into trouble there, so we changed the, the name. <laughs> Against my protestations, we turned, we turned our name to Hush Puppies. And soon yeah. after no, that, I think... They're pretty cool shoes, so yeah, I can see why you wanted to name You, you see where I'm coming from with the kids. So we broke up soon after that. But, uh, yeah, rap music and oldies were, like, my thing. And uh, until at one point my cousin Sean, you know, called me out of some family function into his bedroom and pulled out Flogging a Dead Horse, which was one of those rehashings of existing Sex Pistols recordings, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, played me something that made me feel like we were looking at porn without our eyes open, you know? <laughs> like, uh, it was, like, conspiratorial and creepy and scary. Did it seem really weird to hear it? Like, did it sound like there was a great contrast between what you had been listening to and, like, this thing? Yeah. I think the only other punk song I had heard before that was Lucifuge by Sam Hain? I don't know when that came out, if that's... Or maybe the Misfits. I remember hearing Angel Fuck on a school trip to Baltimore, to, to the Inner Aquarium. and The bus driver was playing this or something? No, no, like the bad kid was like, uh, like put the headphones on me and was like, what do you think of this? <laughs> I should mention I was also like in the jazz band. So this is like dorky second chair uh, tenor saxophone yeah. nerd kid being, you know, for all intents and purposes, mocked with this punk song. Yeah. Uh, didn't catch right away, but... Uh, Am I supposed to talk about about finding punk? Or no, no, we, yeah, we can go just segue right in, because that was basically the next okay, question. Yeah, so I have to credit my cousin, Sean, played me Sex Pistols for the first time. Um, and I, you know what, I feel like some people have this, like, revelatory moment punk story, where they're like, oh my god, I've never heard anything like that. I, I, I certainly hadn't, you know, thoughtfully listened to anything like that before, but it wasn't so much as it blew my mind as, like, I think I was already, like, a bit of a weirdo, like, trying to stay up late and watch, like... Do you remember Friday Night Lights? Uh... Are you talking about Night Flight? Or is Night Flight, Night Flight, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Night right, Flight. Night Flight, yeah, for sure. Because it was, like, Another State of Mind and Reefer Madness right. and, like, all of that weird, like, druggy slash punk stuff that would turn up on there. Yeah, like... Oddball cartoons. Yeah, like, it was almost like... It was like, the, in a world before the internet, this was, like, the weirdest parts of the internet and punk and underground art and stuff, like were just waiting for you on your TV if you could stay up late enough and your parents didn't catch you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was the same thing for, for my brother that I thought of that, that show. So I know through things like that, I was already kind of interested in, like, like I, for somehow I had already fallen in love with Velvet Underground. Um, so, and, like, Lou Reed's, like, you know, Transformer and stuff like that. So this was a different thing, but it kind of fit in that world with me, I feel like. And then right before I went to high school in like 89 or something like that, um, you know, it was an interesting time culturally and in the headlines and, uh, you know, like the... You're talking about fall communism. Yeah, exactly. The fall, like, uh, I don't know if you... Like, Vaclav Havel had a record. And I no, don't... The, pla- the plastic people of the universe, right? The, you're talking about the guy from the Czech Republic? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think it's the... Well, 
either he was friends with that band or he was in that band. Somehow, I, at Repo Records, I picked that up, and you know, it's a really annoying record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, like it was new, so I was like, yeah, God, yeah. I've got this thing, you know. Um, and I like, another thing I was into was like um, shortwave radio. My father used to be a communications guy in the Navy, so um, in addition to helping him fix like old reel-to-reel players, so we could listen to his mixtapes from the Navy, which was just the Beatles. It was, he wouldn't have made a very good DJ. Uh, uh, we would, you know, he got me into, he showed me how to work like a little shortwave radio, which also has the same kind of like, there's a quality to it that is similar, I think, where you're like, you're searching, you're listening to this thing that is not, it's clearly being shared between other people, but it's a, it's something being shared below the surface. Like you could walk down the street and never know who yeah, you're passing yeah. by heard it. And, you know, I think there's that same conspiratorial quality to like hearing weird music for the first time. Especially at that age, right? Yeah, because it's kind of percolating below the surface. It's there, but mm. most people aren't privy to the knowledge right. that it's there. And then when you see it, then everything kind of looks a little different. Yeah, and when you're shit at sports, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, which I was, because it was my dream to play football. Uh, and I was playing football. People who know me now will probably find this comical, but I was taken off the team because I was underweight. Um, <laughs> and I tried my hardest, and as soon as I got up to weight, I had... Uh, I had to have heart surgery and never got to play football. So I needed something else in my life. What happened to your heart, Mike? Did it get broken? It was was broken, man. (laughs) Um, I I had open heart surgery. I I was born with some congenital heart issues, and uh, it hasn't really affected me too much, but it took me out of what could have been an absolutely stellar high school sporting career. You you could have been playing with Michael Vick on the Eagles, (laughs) making dogs kill each other. But I'm glad you're still alive. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I, I like to think I helped the dogs out. Yeah, you definitely <laughs> helped the dogs out. Uh, you also let the dogs out. Uh, um, I'm, I'm all over the place with this. I'm sorry. Okay, so, so, that, so, so Punk, you know, you, you hear the Sex Pistols record. Yes. Does that lead you to kind of like want to hear other things that are of that ilk? Yes. I was lucky enough to uh, have this other friend named uh, Seth Newton who lived up the street from me who was also a weirdo. Um, after I had fallen out with the Hush Puppies slash Air Supply crew, um, my friend Seth was a total like weirdo into art, things like that, and uh, he had already he was already conversant about the Dead Kennedys. So, you know, while the Sex Pistols are a fun group, I think for someone in, by the late by '87 or so, like I don't think that would have necessarily knocked your socks off. But if you've never heard it anything like dog bite or holiday in cambodia mm-hmm. like you know holy shit that's a completely different world you know um right away loved it loved the humor of it loved the um you know the imagery was really crazy which i guess is pretty similar to the sex pistol stuff but something about it having that american lens to it mm-hmm. um was nuts and also you know growing up catholic going to like mass and catholic schools and stuff like some of the imagery that dead kennedys played with was like it just felt so wrong. Yeah, even I just couldn't cover it. It got me trust. It's right. like a serious piece of work there. Yeah, and the Ken- you know the Kennedys. Like you know, I, this is going to sound like a caricature, but I literally come from a family where there was often a picture of JFK on the wall. You know, so uh, yeah. I mean, I come nuts. from Sicilians who had like JFK and the Pope. Oh yeah, oh, the Pope and, then, and then plastic on the couch in between. <laughs> not not in my house, but like the generation behind that. So yeah, that <laughs> makes perfect sense. Uh, so I got super into the Dead Kennedys right away, and I think, you know, a lot of people kind of ha- have that similar route. 
the reason I feel so, 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 so lucky is that, like, not just Philly, but, like, West Philly had such an exciting, I guess, uh, active punk scene at the time that um, it, it it was so easy to go from that, like... I think for some people it takes a long time to realize that, oh, there's punk in my backyard now, alive, happening. I think for some people, depending on how close you are to a city or another scene like that, you don't realize that it's also a living thing. Um, but, like, Scram and McGrad would play, or at least Scram, would play the 4th of July fireworks event, like, in Narberth or in Armour, I think. And, you know, I mean, you'll have to fact-check that with them, but I swear I remember going and, like, seeing things like that. And, um... So I also, the other thing that I felt really lucky about that pushed me along was that my high school that I went to, I was Haverford uh, Public High, is home to WHHS, which is one of, if not the longest, most oldest and most consistently running non-commercial student-run radio stations in the country. Um, and it wasn't just like closed circuit, like where like you had to be in the high school to listen to it. Like, oh, it transmitted outside yeah. of the school. Yeah, I mean, not great, you know, right, but like right. uh, it, depending on you know depending on the topography, it would go pretty far. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you know, it had always been the you know much like a drama club is some places. It was like the the lightning rod for weirdos and for punks and stuff. So um, I got into that right away, and not only did I inherit that sort of sense of community and. Um, the sense of feeling like you have agency in the music and then it's a hands-on thing but i also inherited tons of music like people had people in classes before me had made eight track carts of trained attack dogs and like brotherhood and unfortunately carnivore and a lot of like <laughs> shitty bands but like at least yeah. you get to know at least, without yeah. spending the money yeah i'm not saying i thought carnivore was shitty right away <laughs> But like yeah, you know, there's flag of democracy cart, and like uh, Dave, Dave from FOD also went to that high school and was a member of that radio station. So I don't know if no, some of no these shit. were like gifts from him, you know. Yeah. Um, and that that's really what changed everything. I mean, because then you're you're on this hands-on role with music, and you know, this was still like 1991 or two, where if you wanted to book a band, be it Jane's Addiction or Fugazi, there was like that CMJ booklet you could open up that had the phone numbers yeah, and yeah. how much you should have saved. It was like, it was really a fun time to, and it felt very accessible. So I think it was, it was intoxicating and impossible not to dive in, you know? Right. And I guess it can't be emphasized enough that at that time, to be able to hear all of this stuff was, was kind of difficult because in a pre-internet age, which, you know, might be hard to conceive for some younger folks listening to this thing, there was not a great amount of availability of this music. It would take right. a lot of searching and a fair bit of money, <clears throat> unless you're part of like a tape trading circuit. So mm-hmm. that you could go in there and then have all of this really cool, like very genuine music was like yeah. a great bounty for you. Yeah, and it meant that I could do a little bit of research first before going to like Third Street Rock and Jazz or Repo and making an absolute ass out of myself in front of these like, you know, seemingly cooler, like, you know, bulletproof cool yeah. record store people, you know? Uh, and I was far too shy to ever have a tape pen pal like that, so I needed something like the radio station. <laughs> so when did you start to go to shows in the city? Um, I, f- I have I, I have a problem where I, I've mixed up the memories. I'm not exactly sure what came first, because you know, like I said, in the, in the, in Ardmore and Upper Darby, there was tons of stuff going on. There was a big for better or worse there was a big skinhead scene and they were just like enough like creative kids who were doing punk shows at like their parents houses and 
at like the Battle of the Bands at like some of the high schools, it would you'd essentially be going to a punk show, you know? Yeah. Um, like the Abriacs would play almost all of them, and I still say they were a fucking great fucking punk band. Um, but anyway, I think I started going to shows in uh, spring of 1991. I think it must have been um, one of. I'd be hard pressed to name my first show. I remember seeing Submachine at Group Motion, which is uh, uh, which was a space above what is currently the South Fourth Street Post Office, just off of South Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was insane because that was just like, oh my god! Like the punks looked like punks. They were terrifying, and it was loud and gregarious. Prior to that, I think I went to a show that I can only assume. Looking back, Brian Sokol maybe set up because it was at J.C. Dobbs and it was with like Circus Lupus and uh, Jawbox, which seems like it should be later than 91. But I, I, in my memory, that's one of the first shows I went and saw in the city um, shortly after that Fugazi. So like, you know, like... Was it the Fugazi show at the Drexel? No, it was after that. It was actually at the Troc okay. that I went to. So I know that D.C. stuff was very early in my going to the city show stuff and you know, made a big mark on me. Um, John Paul Galaski is someone who I became friends with through friends in the suburbs who uh, who drove and who knew the city. He had an older sister who worked at WKDU radio station, and she had lived, I think, at Kill Time. So, you know, like, he was, John Paul Galaski was, and, and it is still like a really outgoing guy who, like, loves to pull people into things, and he took me to some show down there, and... I got to just like meet all these older people who were in active bands like Rich Hoke and, and Alexander from WKDU and Joanna from Thorazine and uh, probably a Chuck Meehan I'm sure is how I met them and you know that was like at a cool time when like Blue would play Basements and uh, the Goats were just starting and uh, the Roots or the Square Roots were still just starting so like it was a crazy time to see shows in West Philly Basements between punk bands and hip hop groups and um so I, I really owe that all to him. And did you find the scene as you were coming into it to be accepting of you, you know, being a young person? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, maybe I got really lucky by kind of being brought in the back door, so to speak, through people like John Paul and his older sister. But, uh, um, and I don't, you know, I don't even know if they, like if Alexandra, his sister, would even like remember this. But like to me it was a big deal because these are people who are like, you know, four years older than me who were just like, really nice and friendly um and the crew at jc dobbs was really friendly too like i i remember you know early on meeting like you or your your brother or brian and stuff and there was a lot more wise ass angle or flavor there because i think you know we were a little bit younger and it was fun to be wise ass but like you know it quickly felt to me like oh like this is a wise ass streak i can totally get with like this is i so i remember feeling like really excited about it early on and just being really psyched to find it. So then when do you start to, to actively do stuff like, you know, evolve with shows or style like Kill Time, you know, all that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, I didn't, I know I didn't, I didn't wait long enough. I know I started a band way too soon because they were, most of them weren't any good. But they were fun. Um, what, were, what were some of these bands? Or? Oh, me and John Paul Galaski's younger brother Edmund and some other people had a group called KW Battery 
named for the battery company that my father worked for as a battery salesman. <laughs> we're very creative people <laughs> for naming, yeah. Um, and at the time, I think we were so enamored of bands like Missing Foundation that we would just, I don't know, break guitars and just be idiots. You know, because you're like at that age, you're like, why not put a drill into the pickup and see what happens, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I think John Paul just thought it was too impossibly funny not to caution us against doing that sort of thing. So, uh-huh. you know. Um, and eventually, you know, there were a lot of folks in the Upper Derby area. So, you know, I, I feel like I always had friends in the city and friends in the suburbs. But for whatever reason, you know, it just felt easier or it just came together that I was playing more with people from the suburbs at my first groups. So, um, you know, I, me and some friends had a, a band called Justified Action, which was you know, artistically bankrupt, I would say, in hindsight, but really, really fun. Um what was the band like? I, what made it so fun? Um, the people were fun. It was, it was for all intents and purposes, my first time really playing in a band. Um, and, you know, it, it almost felt so seamless to go from watching shows to playing shows, just because the, I think what made the, what I found so interesting and fascinating about the punk scene was, um, it almost sounds cliche to put it in words, but I think 1991, 19, early 90s Philly was really the kind of scene where the lines were blurred between band and audience. Like everyone, it felt like it, the whole thing was an active participation thing, you know? Um, so the, you know, just switching to being, see, looking at the room from a different place and having a guitar over my shoulder just didn't really feel that different. It was just like, yeah, oh, we're doing thing. Yeah, you're going to get back thing. in the audience, you know, right, right, right. since it's over anyway, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I graduated high school in the summer of 1994. Um, I think that band, Justified Action, was just breaking up. And um, uh, I began playing with some other folks. I had met Mon, uh, this mm-hmm. guy named Mon Prok Ovatharsan, who is uh, from, originally from southwest Philadelphia. Of, uh, uh, they used to do a fanzine called Mafuka that was the first... Uh, I guess you would call it queer core fanzine that I ever saw. And to be frank, it was the first time I saw people my age talking about uh, their sexuality, let alone homosexuality, in such a in-your-face way. Um, so that was really interesting to me. And so, you know, I, I should back up. That, that band Justified Action, uh, so, you know, I call them artistically bankrupt, which is like kind of a that's kind of unfair to say. We, we were a great band for 15-year-olds. Um, <laughs> But we were, I, my contributions were absolutely derivative. You know, like I was a seven seconds junkie, and that's what I brought to the band. Yeah, but when you're 15, <laughs> I mean, that's just the way that it works, right? It, it yeah. qualify you know, any of those statements. Uh, totally. I mean, and like, you know, I'm sure I was really quick to jump and put on a champion hoodie at some point because I had all these friends from the suburbs who were of that, like, straight-edge youth crew worshipping streak, and I was like, okay, I'm... But even at my peak of being in that world, like that's when I met uh, Mon, and uh, he invited that band to play at this benefit basement show, Forty uh, Third and Spruce, with Nilla, uh, which was a riot girl band from New York, who wound up giving us members of that band Harem Scarum, uh, which is at least a funny, at least as funny a transition, uh, in my opinion. But I was like, I really. I was really struck at how cool it was that this guy who had every reason to write off what we were doing uh, would invite us to play this kind of a show um, where there was, you know, there was like 
people it was, it was some pretty in-depth queer and riot girl politics people were talking about that shows like bands of women were performing topless which you know, I have to say for like 17 year olds from the suburbs in high school guys it was like that was that was a real leap of faith on their part to be like yeah we should let these guys play they're not going to be complete fucking dopes about it you know yeah, yeah. Um, and that that really meant a lot to me so um, I was lucky that after that I began playing in a band with that fellow man called F80 um, which was at least according to Philadelphia Weekly, uh, a band of queer core heartthrobs. Uh, Including you. <laughs> uh, I remember that quote only because my father read it uh, at breakfast one morning and asked me what that meant. Uh, it was Maybe time for a little talk. <laughs> Dad, I'm a heartthrob. <laughs> I wasn't going to come out as a heartthrob this early, but... But, you know, uh, weekly writer. <laughs> so... That was a funny world. I, another situation where I feel like I had no business being there, you know? But I met a lot of really cool people who exposed me to really cool ideas. And lucky for me, people who were patient enough to, like, give me time to figure out these ideas. And this was a very, kind of a very early concept for the punk scene. I mean, there wasn't... You didn't see that kind of thing through the 80s. So really, right. it, I mean, I think a lot of those folks were probably kind of, like, getting getting their feet and kind of seeing, you know, how this thing is going to work going forward. Uh, there just wasn't a lot of discussion of that or or anything prior to that. I think you're right, but I still very much felt like, oh, I'm the, I'm the young outsider. This is way more established. And of course it wasn't. I mean, Riot Girl, for instance, was absolutely just coming to Philadelphia, I think. You know, it, it maybe had a year on it in D.C. or something, but... Um, you know, just because people were maybe like a year older, that's a big deal in punk. You know, that's oh, like a, yeah, that's yeah. that's the difference from sophomore to junior, right? Like, yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, where so you moved. To, <laughs> so you're in F80, and then uh, I guess you were eventually involved in, in putting on shows. Oh yeah, right. Sorry. So um, yeah, I guess I started helping Mon with some shows first. I mean, I would do shows in the suburbs, you know, for like those the the patch of suburban bands that were all friends. Um, who were, which was absolutely fun, too, you know. Um, uh, people from Westchester, people from Upper Darby, um, uh, you know, at, at various places. Usually clubs, which uh, we can talk more about later. I think the, the maturity that comes with booking at commercial venues when you realize that's not where you want to be anymore. Um, but also... Uh, you know, pretty. I was still in high school when I figured out, like, oh, I like working with community centers and church basements rather than bars. And uh, I remember I had the brilliant idea of doing an oi festival at, at now, a what, daycare. What, what year is this? Ninety-three or four? Ninety-four? Uh, uh -huh. That was a mess. Like I, I just remember hooligans on parade playing. And, uh, I think that was another example where, like, John Paul had to just completely save me because I was in way over my head. And they're like, ARA or Sharp were demanding they should be security in, 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 in like, a very Hell's angels -y sort of way, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, Jesus, what have I done? Yeah, I guess once you guys started swimming in oil waters, <laughs> they could be very murky waters. Right. Uh, and I mean, and it not it wasn't that none of the bands were politically weird because that was certainly the time when there were bands... There were bands saying, from this area saying absolutely atrocious things. That was, I think it was 94 or so that that compilation, 7-inch compilation, came out called 
whose country is this anyway? <laughs> Did they manage to spell all the words correctly? <laughs> um, it might have been whose, H-O-N-W-H-O-S-E. Yeah, I don't remember. But it was, I mean, one of the songs was uh, Get Back in the Closet. Like, I mean, just yeah. really atrocious stuff. Um, so I know it was, it was none of that world. You know, it was, not, it was definitely people not like that. But, you know, you know, as you said, when you're dealing with oi, you're, it's, it's, you very, it's a permeable come. boundary. Yeah, you don't know who's yeah, going to yeah. come. Yeah, yeah it's that's very, it, yeah. Like, the band might be all right, but the band's friends... It, it's a permeable membrane, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and lots of germs are filtering through the permeations. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I guess what I got really, really more into doing shows was uh, through Mon. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was really lucky to work with him on shows for, like, some really interesting bands, like, you know, Kicking Giant, Team Dresh, uh, Huggy Bear, Vitapup, um, uh, The Makeup, The Warmers, Chisel's first show. Uh, I'll, I'll go public on record and apologize to Chisel, The Warmers, and Makeup for putting on what is probably the most irresponsibly sloppy show at Act Up Space. I'm still angry about this. So were, were these shows <laughs> taking place at Act Up Space or were you doing them somewhere else? I did a couple different places and I think eventually Mon just suggested I go to Act Up and I, I met Albo and talked to Albo for a little bit and uh, I can only assume he got such a kick out of this like lily white X'd up, like straight edge X'd up on the fist suburban straight kid being like, can I do shoes at your Act Up Space? And I think the, I don't remember if it was Albo or someone else, but the deal was you can do it for like 50 bucks. All you have to do is clean up after the event that's here beforehand. It's uh, the Philly Jacks. And I'm, I'm of course like, oh, is that another band? And I think this kind <laughs> of smiled. And <laughs> you got to explain to people who don't know. <laughs> you now you have to explain what that is. I am not entirely sure. I've never been behind the curtain, so to speak, but... Is the Philly Jacks a? Is it like an anonymous sex party? Could could be. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I haven't been there either. <laughs> Having cleaned but, it up, I'll uh, say that I, may have been part I of. I believe <laughs> men are, are, are manually manipulating each other in a probably a circular formation, <laughs> not in like a circle pit. Um, it's like a circle. Wait, pit. so when you have to <laughs> when you have to clean this up, is this just like a? It seems like coming with a mop. No, and, it was never as bad. Why does Apple hate you so much? <laughs> Uh, I think they just Did you have to do with your tongue? <laughs> All right. Uh, no, honestly, it was like taking down curtains and partitions mostly. Is that the way that it's? I have no fucking idea. There's, so there's curtains and partitions for this for this event. I was seeing all this at least after one stage of, of it already being broken down. So yeah. I never got a sense of what it actually looked like, you know. And I don't know if it was always Philly Jacks. I just remember the, the first moment of getting this sort of. Uh, devilish smile and this sort of like sure kid come back come back friday at eight you know um but yeah i really liked working with act up um i thought i mean act up was a such a crazy interesting organization and you know at the time they were like totally in the headlines and when operation rescue came to town uh, very few philadelphians can forget the act up presence at that and uh i was really excited to be do you want to actually just mention a little bit about what that was sure um well, I mean, ACT UP was one of, one of, if not, well, at least to me, seemed at the time the most, in, the most intense and the most radical uh, grassroots organization that was dealing with um, 
I think to me at the time it seemed like they were dealing with uh, like gay rights to some degree, but it, you know, but it, it was what they really were were dealing with um, HIV and AIDS advocacy. Um, this was, I, I mean, at the time I'm talking about booking shows was definitely '93 or '94 or later, but we're still very much coming out of this era of like the culture wars where. Um, yeah, I don't know, the mainstream narrative was like, if you had AIDS, you were a pariah. Like, it was very much, it was sick. I mean, uh, people, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this great documentary now called How to Survive a Plague, which is just incredible, talking about that world and uh, what people had to go through at the time and uh, the, the role that ACT UP had in, in fighting that. Um, so when Operation Rescue came to town, which Operation Rescue was, uh, you know, a, a fundamentalist anti-abortion um, campaign of some jerk re reverend, um, oh, what's the name? Yeah, it's been a while. I uh, don't remember. I just remember Randall getting into it with the guy. Maybe Phelps, no relation but, to Baptist, to Westboro no, I Baptist. Think, I think you might be right. But yeah, I think yeah, the name yeah, might have been yeah, Phelps. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they were anti-choice, and like so many anti-choice groups, you know, they had all the great attending flavor of being anti-woman and anti-sex and blah, blah, blah. And the Catholic Church was being absolutely complicit in that line of thinking at the time, um, the mainstream Catholic Church. And uh, in the middle, uh, there was a great, great action that ACT UP was involved in at a, church, a Catholic church in, in, in Center City that I'll, I'll never forget. And, um, it was very confrontational, but also really... Do you want to briefly kind of detail what... I don't remember it. You know, I remember being there and it blowing, blowing my mind, uh, but I don't remember what they did. They, uh, it, was, it was to confront... There was a high, higher level than usual speaker, you know, maybe an archbishop or something who had been, um, if not absolutely negative, he'd been uh, silent on or complicit with attitudes that were in effect killing people and dehumanizing people, you know, because yeah. they were gay. Um, and I don't remember what ACT UP did, but uh, I remember them stick, sticking it to them pretty pretty well in a pretty irreverent fashion, which I thought was pretty intense. Um, so I, although I didn't know the ins and outs of it, I was really, uh, I was really psyched that that's where a lot of my shows were. Um, and I, it just de facto kind of made a lot of my shows benefits for ACT UP, you know, just because it made sense. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was mostly what I was doing until Stalag 13 started up and friends or friends of friends had a warehouse where uh, it made more sense because it was so easy just to book shows there. Do you want to explain where Stalag is for folks and what that place was like? Sure. So um, Lancaster Avenue uh, around uh, 38th Street uh, has this little corridor of a handful of buildings that have, at least since the mid-80s, been an epicenter of, of punk shows. Um, and I guess I shouldn't just say punk, like interesting underground art and shows. Um, Fake House, Kill Time, uh, and then at least several Is years. Is Nowhere to, House too, right? Oh, the, yeah, that? the Nowhere House. Yeah. Um, and those were places that I, you know, I had seen bands play and um, the Cabbage Collective had done a few events there and um, that's where I'd seen Bikini Kill and... Um, you know, there are there's a giant missing foundation symbol painted on the front of fake house. You know, there were they, these are places that loomed large already. Um, and then in ninety, oh yeah, ninety three or ninety four, uh, early ninety four, 
people moved into this little one-floor warehouse, um, which was owned by the Pincus family, who have an elevator repair business. Uh, and this warehouse, I think, was mostly used for storage. Uh, and I can't remember everyone who moved into it initially, but one of the founding people was uh, Jim Doherty, uh, a.k.a. Mega Jimmy, of the punk band Double Penetration, who was also... Uh, uh, had. I'm supposed to be with the serial killers. The serial killers. I don't know what he... Maybe he mascot? Was, uh, yeah, I would say mascot. Pegboy, yeah. you know, uh, uh, instigator of the serial killers, um, who, although they are, a, both them and Dole Penetration are very gross as bands in terms of their lyrics and presentation, I, I Jimmy was a very friendly guy who seemed very nice. Um... So anyway, uh, Mega Jimmy and some other people moved into this, this Stalag 13, and um, I remember they did a show on Valentine's Day of 1994. I don't remember all the bands, but I could, one of them was called The Applicators. They had chosen that name just, like on the fly because someone was making a flyer. Uh, and one of the people in the band The Applicators was Andrew Martini, who turned out uh, with, in that next year to become one of my best friends, who is still one of my closest friends to this day. Um, uh, over the course of 94, 95, people moved in and out of this warehouse. It was not all that luxurious a place to live. Now, I think were you living in this no, place? No, 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 no. I would hang out there. Um, I was, I would hang out with Mega Jimmy, and you know, I knew some of the other folks who lived there. But it wasn't until the next generation, or you know, it wasn't until some roommate changeover happened that like people who were more my peers lived there, like Mikey Brosnan and some other people, and. Um, in addition to that prompting me to hang out there more, that they also happened to get more intentional about having shows more regularly. Um, and then at some point, um, I remember uh, Tony Pointless, Tony Crosdale, had some kind of falling out with his family. And I remember John Paul and I helped moved him out of his family's home into this concrete box named aptly for the set of, a Ho of Hogan's Heroes. Like... Uh, and that's when it just became, you know, they were just doing shows all the time. And um, early on, I, you know, Tony was doing his shows, Mikey was doing his shows, and uh, Andrew Martini and myself were, and... So these were all, like, the individuals were all doing separate shows? All doing separate yeah, shows. Yeah, so it wasn't like a group was doing them all together. Right, except we'd all be there and would all basically be... If we'd been smarter about it, we would have had one meeting and just made this all our shows. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, Robbie Redcheeks, Andrew, myself, Mikey Brosnan, um, and Andrew Martini, Tony, and then of course, Sean Agnew eventually. Um, uh, and I thought Stalag was a really neat place, certainly for, like, my generation of punk, you know, or whatever, like my age bracket. That was absolutely the formative years of punk for me and a lot of my friends. Like, uh, you know, it lasted four years, just as long as high school, and... You weren't entirely sure if you would ever see some of these same people again, or know if you wanted to. But like, you totally were. It was it was it was great, and I think the trailer you have for the for this is is spectacular because I watched it and I was like, you know, I, I never had the sense at the time that this looked quite as Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome <laughs> as it did. Like, like just with like the, the, the railroad tracks torn up on Lancaster Avenue and just like police just standing across the street watching dumbfounded what was happening like you know just complete you know 
everyone, underage kids drinking or fucking in the bathroom. Uh, it, was, it was it was a wild scene. It was uh, by no, it was a very different flavor than I feel like. There's this narrative people tell of like L.A. in the early '80s, Black Flag. I was wearing a chair. Someone hit me with. <laughs> like it totally wasn't that, but it was also like. It was dangerous on one level. It was like this is not a place where you pay to get in and you hang your coat somewhere in the coat check and you and you, this was insane. You know, people on top of people, absolutely no security. Like policed by punks, for punks, put on by punks. It was messy. It was smelly. It was great. Yeah, it was real. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, you know, it became. Um, Throughout all this time, I feel like 91 up through 95 or 6 or 7, I don't know if I would say Philadelphia felt like a real important stop on a lot of bands' tours, at least initially. And I think um, there was a lot of things that happened in the city that put it on the map, at least for the the bands that were... I mean, I, I don't say that from a, from a, like, there was no punk and then we came around. Was, uh, not that, but just like... It, it took work to make the new crop of bands give a shit about this city between New York and D.C. that had such established character, you know, and and status, I suppose. Or, How do you think the bands felt about Philadelphia prior to this and then later? So what, was the, what, was, what do you think the feeling of Philadelphia was outside of Philadelphia? It was a backwater. I, f I mean, you know, we would go to shows at like... To see a lot of bands, it meant going to Trenton to City Gardens or going to Unisound, which was this crazy club out in the the, the farmland. I don't even know where it was, Reading or something? Or, yeah, something like that. Um, and it wasn't until, I, I feel like, the Cabbage Collective was a big part of it. Um, Cabbage Collective started doing shows at the Calvary Church in West Philly, and uh, it was an alternative to the... I think the early 90s were a time where there was a bit of a turnover where like it was hard to make punk uh, economically viable even just on like a show to show basis if it was going to be all ages so there was you know the Kyber has its own history right and there there's always the Kyber Pass and whatever there's venues here that have always existed and I'm sure there were great shows there you know I'm sure people were seeing like John Spencer Blues Explosion and it was fucking cool but those people were like 24 and up right we were 17 18 we didn't have IDs. I remember getting chucked out of Kyber numerous times trying to go see Unwound and things like that. And um, So all ages shows were, uh, as I'm sure you remember, like they, it was like pulling teeth to get established commercial promoters to do all ages shows. Um, Which in a sense is great because then that compels the individuals then. Exactly. That we're not being, our market, ourselves are not being met. Right. You know, so now we must. So they had to create, we had to do it ourselves. Get yeah. off our backs, yeah. we're doing it ourselves, <laughs> you know. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is just a, a, a different, a different version of what people like Chuck Meehan and stuff had to do in the early 80s or the mid 80s when, you know, the Club Pizzazz or Pyramid or whatever weren't chasing people down to be like, please do a crazy hardcore show at my club yeah. where, you know. Uh, they had to create their own systems, and we inherited that vocabulary and infrastructure to some point. But it certainly didn't seem like it, there was much going on initially until um, people got more serious about making an effort in non-commercial alternative spaces. Um, 
really bringing back the DIY ethos, I think, which anytime, anytime the DIY thing is being enacted as a process that is at least as important as the product you're getting, the show, the experience, it changes the whole experience and it makes it, I mean, people are going to be more excited, right? Because they're invested in it. It's their thing. So, and I think that was part of what was happening at, at that time, which made it really exciting. Yeah, and I think that maybe the intimacy between the, the people in the audience and the bands, like we were yeah. you know, talking about before and how they kind of flowed into each other and probably were taking these seeds back to other places too. So that maybe, you know, when your band would tour and go to another part of the country, you'd see something similar to the, the scene in Philadelphia then because those ideas were kind of percolating, percolating more amongst those people. Yeah, I, I mean, by the time I was in a band that actually was touring like around the country, yeah, that people were flocking to Philadelphia. Like punks were moving to Philadelphia. People were, would come up to us at shows and say, "Like, oh my God, you're from Philadelphia!" Like Stalag Thirteen, the people, blah blah blah. Um, so that was like a very different. I remember at one point just feeling like, "Oh, this is a lot different than like begging Rick D to please yeah, yeah. give us three hours on a Sunday afternoon to have like Di play for people who weren't twenty one." He needed to polish his giant boots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think that was part of the problem maybe with, with the 80s Phillies punk scene, how it's largely overlooked in history because it didn't have that kind of focus uh, and therefore it's sort of forgotten and then it seems to kind of come to life in the 90s. Not as if what happened before wasn't valid, because it certainly was, but as far as like being paid attention to by the greater greater country. Yeah, I guess because you know, the 80s scene was maybe using commercial infrastructure to some degree so that like although the bands were fucking fantastic like wide-eyed decontrol and uh flag democracy and you know, they were great bands yeah, ruin. ruin but uh, maybe a lot of the people who were going to the shows as as participants were just when they stopped going as paying audiences that that generation of that particular scene and time and place sort of fizzled out because there was only you know a handful of people who continued with it out of you know for whatever reasons, just felt like like Chuck and, and FOD can continue, but uh, yeah, I mean, and that is that is a very tentative hypothesis because I don't know what all these people have gotten into. I, I'm sure people are doing interesting things, but I think it's different when you have to do it all yourself because you're making connections with people and bonds with people that go beyond, quote unquote, after the gig. To borrow a, a discharge part. <laughs> <laughs> so you move through several years, then four years of, of these shows at Stalag, and then what happens with Stalag? Well, uh, I was on tour at the time. With what band? Uh, I used to play in a band with Andrew Martini called uh, Kill the Man Who Questions. And we were somewhere on the West Coast. I want to say we were in Seattle or Portland. We were in Seattle at our friend Adam's house. Um, Adam used to live at Castle Grayskull, which was one of the LCA houses on 50th and Cedar. Don't explain what an LCA house is. Sure. Oh, yeah. LCA is um, a, a nonprofit in this very neighborhood where um, people bought... Is this an LCA house? It was. It, well, for, it, it's now owned by... Okay. Yeah, it was a land tr trust, is that what you call it? Where people just decide, yeah. instead of paying rent to a landlord, they sort of begin to buy it themselves so it's owned collectively among the residents and um, at the end of some kind of long process of paperwork and money, the house is owned by the residents rather than, uh, you know, a realty company or something. Uh, and there's quite a few of those here in the Baltimore Avenue corridor, which is, which is lovely. Yes. Um, so our friend Adam 
who used to live at one of those had since moved to Seattle. Um, and we were on tour and we were staying at his house and we got a phone call from Tony Pointless saying, essentially trying to reach Andrew, just being like, oh, oh no. <laughs> I think it's finally happened. And then what was it that had... Uh, the straw that had broken the camel's back. I mean, you can imagine the kind of friction that happens when you're having like up to four shows a week of you know absurd, crazy punk children yeah. uh, blocked from the police station. Um, what the, the straw that broke the camel's back, from what I understand, was there was a Philly Fest some people had organized. I'd be hard-pressed to say who. I think uh, Melissa Frost might have been one of the organizers. Scott B. Uh, I'm, un I'm unclear. But uh, they had done this show, and it had, you know, it had run late with too many bands, as every show did. This is by no means putting it on them, you know. Yeah. But I, I think something, you know, there was one too many shows that went to 2 a.m., and the cops just showed up and were like, absolutely not, you know, no. <laughs> um, and after four years, that's a pretty impressive run. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't, so I don't actually know exactly what happened. I, it got shut down. Tony called Andrew. Cause, you know, and, uh, Tony is living there. Andrew is, Andrew and Tony are putting on tons of shows every week, you know, like, that are booked throughout the, throughout the summer. Actually, at this point, I think it's Andrew Martini, Tony Pointless, and Sean Agnew are booking the Stalag as if it's a club. You know, so the calendar is booked every weekend night and a couple weeknights up through the next five months, right? Yeah. Of national headlining acts. Mm. By headlining acts, of course, I mean people with dread mullets who could pack 150 people into a room. Um, so, yeah, basically this meant, like, Tony was, like, effectively going to become homeless because he couldn't afford the exorbitant $200 a month rent. Oh, to live. <laughs> and there's also a bucket you could piss in. Right, right, you know. Um, so And Andrew was, you know, had to find homes for all these shows, Sean had to find homes for all these shows and um, so you know it, it didn't really hit us at the time because I think when you're doing a, a venue like that um, and I, I shouldn't I, I'm not taking credit for this I I had a very small hand in Stalag 13 but um, you know when you and your friends are doing this kind of a thing you're you know every show or every week there's some kind of fire to put out there's some kind of opposition or and the whole idea of running that kind of a space is you don't ask for permission because then someone could say no so you're just constantly doing things and seeing what happens and there's something some fire to be put out so at the, you know, at the time of the phone call we were like oh you know well of course this would happen we left tony alone for three months you know <laughs> but then we came home and we're like oh man this is really shit so then there was like the last show, as I remember. And that was a big deal, and it was actually really, uh, it was very emotional. You know, I remember like people crying and. What was the last show? Well, there, you know, in t in true punk fashion, there was more than one show billed as the definite official last show. The one I, I'm, I'll be a nepotist and remember the one I was involved in. Our band, Kill the Man Who Questions, played with. His heroes gone, or maybe. That was rotten. I don't remember. <laughs> we could say both. <laughs> there were so many exciting shows all the time yeah. that like it was impossible to, to pull them apart, you know. Um, but I remember things like Tony uh, encouraging kids to take memorabilia off the wall if they wanted. I I took a piece of an old skate deck that had been there since I think the very early days. Someone had someone had written in chalk on the uh, grip tape, "Gay rights." <laughs> Which, by 96, was a pretty, like, archaic phrasing, you uh -huh. know? But I remember always thinking that it was, like, a nice thing to look up and see. 
when so many punk clubs you would go to, there'd be like atrocious graffiti on the wall being like, you know, fags eat tires. You know, you'd be like, what? Um, so this was neat to see. And I remember that. I was like, oh, I'm going to take that. That's going to hang in my room, which was, you know, 30 yards away around the corner of the house, which was essentially the bathroom for any Stalag VIP or yeah. resident. <laughs> so you still have this, by the way? I do. I do. It is at my father's house in Ardmore. Uh, sufficiently mildewy as it was in, in its heyday. That's good. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm rambling too much, but I guess the, the end of Stalag was sort of, to me, I, I think of Stalag 13 ended and in the mad rush of trying to accommodate all these shows that were still booked slash looking to the future, um, Tony and Andrew and Sean decided to enter into a legal LLC, a limited liability corporation called Stalag 2000, where uh, at the at the request, at the at the coaxing of a development guy at UPenn, they they entered into this, this arrangement where University of Pennsylvania let them book shows at university property at this place, 4040 Locust, called the 4040 Club. No relation to the baller hip-hop 4040 Club in Jay-Z lyrics. Um, I know nothing about this. <laughs> The kids love it, Joe. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll check the internet later. Yeah, Google it. Um, they have ESPN up on the screen, apparently, is what I gather from the lyrics. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Am I the only person who's talking about these these things? I, I should... there, there, could, there could be crossover about this stuff, okay. because people tell different, wildly different stories, and folks probably won't listen to every interview. Okay, good. That's really shit. Um, yeah, I hope I'm not being the definitive word on any of this. But, no, no uh, nobody's supposed to be the definitive word. So okay, it's good. fine to just... Um, your perspective on that, or so the, your, your recollection. My recollection was it was really it was interesting because the forty forty club was like um, you know I think no one was particularly head over heels about the idea of going from an unlicensed, basically outlaw venue that any you know that, you know Jimmy Eat World showed up and thought it was a squat you know which is always a, a badge of honor I think for us punk punks you know uh-huh. no offense to Jimmy Eat World um, you know I think no one was head over heels about going from that to this like, you know, thing that was bound to entail compromise of some sort, right? Uh, and also, I guess, it leaves you open if like Junior gets his head cracked right. open. You're a corporation that can be sued now, not like a bunch of dudes who can just sort of magically disappear. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yeah, you know, having lived around the corner from Stalag 13, and our house being between Stalag 13 and Presbyterian Hospital, you know, we, we walked enough kids with broken heads from that venue yeah. to the hospital, and. You know, I remember there was a lot of, not a lot, but there was a certain degree of, of, of kickback and criticism from uh, diehard punk kids who were sort of, who saw it as a sellout move. Um, and, um, the, which I didn't think was fair at the time. I thought it was an interesting experiment, and I thought, you know, th- these are my friends, so of course my, my perspective is going to be biased, but I mean, Andrew Marcini and Tony Pointless are you know, adorable people who really wanted nothing out of this except to to continue this culture, which was so great to them. And, and there were also two people who I think had seen that if you wanted something sustainable, it took a bit of, uh, it took work and level-headedness. Like, you couldn't be fucked up all the time. Like, um, Andrew and me, you know, I don't think anyone who's known us over the course of more than one decade thinks of us as straight edge or people who don't drink, obviously. But... During Stalag 13, like, 
that we a bunch of us really were like although it was the most like punk looking thing like dirty studded punk out like the expression we use was get get decked not wrecked and uh decked being like decked out in your punk gear yeah, you know yeah. uh, and most of us were like not drinking and not doing drugs because you had to be on point to to have these shows go together and to make sure that people were safe it, within quotes right you know yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. um so anyway i thought those were great people to be involved and sean um yeah. <laughs> has history has shown Sean is someone who has a, certainly an abiding passion to continue booking shows um, and Sean had a ton of shows which I always thought was fucking really cool I thought it was really neat that in Philadelphia there were um, punk run kid run venues that were always all ages where the emphasis had always been on the music and the community as opposed to the bar tab right mm-hmm. um, where you would go see a band you, where you could go see karate or you could, or, you know, uh, Madis, well, no, Spaz, or, you know, of all sorts, you know, yeah. the stylistic barriers were not a thing, you know, um, which I thought was really, really cool. Uh, as it turned out, you know, I think 4040 Club was, didn't last all that long. Uh, it didn't ever feel quite as exciting to me. It felt more like a rented venue. You, you, we were a guest as opposed to creating the hive of our own community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, you know, long story short, uh, 4040 Club, uh, there was one other venue called the Rotunda, which was at, on 40th and Chestnut, no, sorry, 40th and Walnut, which was another location that the university kind of gave Sean and Tony and Andrew a, a bit of carte blanche to sort of try running as a, a club part-time. Never really worked, as of course those things wouldn't, because I think it was it was a compromise both from the university and from the the punks and and eventually you know tony and andrew had never really wanted to be professional show promoters they were just kids who put on shows and eventually you know they kind of dropped out of of it to some degree so and sean pursued it because um sean had i don't know how intentional it was but basically sean decided to run with it and um our five productions is of course now thought of as you know a, a very reputable established pro uh, yeah. uh, concert production company. Um, that brings us up to two thousand two or something like that. Well, well, we'll skip ahead a little bit. We'll kind of sum it up. Now, clearly, you've you've been involved with this thing through your entire life, and maybe your maybe your level of involvement now isn't as intense as it as it once was. Uh, but it seems like the interest has remained really consistent. Um, and the ethos has remained consistent. So maybe you could talk about not only what you, if you want to say, what you do for your job, because it seems to be kind of consistent with maybe some of the political parts, but also how how your interest has, has uh, been sustained and, and why and all that. Sure. Um, well, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I've, I've guess I've been involved with punk for over 20 years to some degree and, and you know I'm less involved now I'm not I'm not playing music but um, certainly the friendships that were you know made or began and in even the people I met at some of the first shows I went to are people I'm friends with now and um, I think because Philadelphia had such a great or such you know such an active punk scene um, that my closest friends were really really active in um, throughout my teenage years and my 
early through mid through late 20s um, I, I always felt connected to it and um, you know it certainly wasn't uh, a utopia you know uh, I have my outlook of it because I was friends with the people who were p putting on a lot of the shows and playing a lot of the bands and um, so I never felt shut out I never felt like my band couldn't get a show but maybe someone else who didn't happen to be friends with Sean and Andrew would have a completely different take on this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, just, just by historical accident, who's friends with who, there's going to be a bit of gatekeeping just out of convenience, right? You know, or personal taste. Um, but anyway, um, I guess, yeah, like, that's what we did. I, I don't, like, that was my world. I don't think I went to, a, like, a bar or a club until... 2000 or 2001 uh stacy george and brian labuda who's like or now like really good friend of mine had a, a like a brit pop night somewhere in south philly and i went to it and i was like blown away i was like oh like this is what like people go to bars and they was like they listen to music and um like I, it was seriously like 2000 and i was hearing like pulp for the first time like just in, that's how myopic or that's how that's how invested fully in this punk thing I, I was so um you know i felt like i was kind of coming up for air a bit by by the mid-aughts um but because of that it had been such a big deal for in all of our lives like um yeah those are my friends like and that's it's hard to see the world in any other way i mean i don't know if this is something anyone else has said but although i still totally love music concerts have sort of been ruined for me like i can't i can't enjoy a concert where uh i feel a passive role um which maybe says something about an annoying personality type of mine <laughs> but like you know the bigger the r5 shows got at like certain venues i would just i would watch bands that i thought musically were fantastic like you know love is all or or um uh, i don't know whatever you know any band right and i would just I, I would I would be too conscious of what was missing. Like I would be too conscious of the separation between band and audience, or um, you know that you know it wasn't us doing the door, or you know not to criticize this, you know, but um, it's weird how that affects your overall outlook. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, so I guess I've started with the negative side. The positive side is that like what a different way to see the world. Um, some interview I heard with Ian Mackay once he got into about skateboarding right and how when you start skateboarding you start seeing the world differently because like you start to become more conscious of a curb or different topography happening in, in architecture You're like, oh i could totally grind that or i could jump that and and that that affects the way you see the world around you in a physical way the whole rest of your life mm -hmm. and i that's the best analogy i can give to this is like it 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 makes you think differently and um so I, I, I'm really lucky right now. I'm working, uh, I have a paid job that is in a non-profit, I guess, in activism for you know, verbal shorthand. Um, and I, I'm really lucky to do that, but there's the number of people who came from this world of punk or underground music in the time of my generation or whatever, who have found their ways into doing really interesting work, be it in, in the arts or being it in... in you know, public health policy or social work or, um, you know, people who are organizing for uh, uh, restaurant workers to get paid sick days. Like, ah, that is super inspiring to me. And obviously that stuff is not righteous because 
people who happen to own uh, Alf's Rotten Seven Inches are doing it. You know, <laughs> punk has no monopoly on righteousness. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's really exciting to know that, like, after the lyrics, or, you know, the, that for all the bombast and the revolutionary gesture of punk, there is at least a num a good swath of people for whom uh, that meant more than just. Uh, Something that rhymed to go along with the angry music, you could yeah. shake people music, to. More than will. music, yeah. yeah, yeah. To um, and you know I, the easiest way to talk about this, I think, at least for me, is about the politics. You know, like here I'm talking about people who people took it as more than music and did something with it politically, but that, that, that by far is not it shouldn't be the only way to look at it. You know, um, I, I think I think. People who come from DIY punk, who, have, who participate in DIY uh, culture that they create and engage in with themselves and, and their community and other people, makes a very interesting kind of person and makes you attuned to the possibilities of community on maybe a more real level. Like, a punk club is only ever going to be so big physically. There's a whole lot of world outside of it, right? And... Um, there's bigger issues to fry than mm-hmm. what bands have said what and who's fucked over who and you know who's seven inch sucks like and I think one one really cool thing that DIY I'm gonna say punk but you know whatever punk in quotes DIY stuff can do is uh, it prepares you to be a non-passive participant in a, in a world where you know we nothing we consume is actually passive right so I think the DIY ethos is a great thing to think about in all aspects of life. Um, I'm going to stop there. So I feel like I'm just babbling. <laughs> okay, last question. Uh, when is your book coming out? Oh. <laughs> you can't cover up the tape recorder. Um, it's coming, actually. So, But maybe we should explain. Like, this is the only project I ever heard about punk that I thought, this guy gets it. Maybe because you come from the same sort of generation as me and have a similar view of the ethos, but what what is the premise of your book, and where where are you on? Sure. Uh, so I'm working on a, a book that hopes to document uh, a, at least a portion or a version of the mid to late 1990s punk and hardcore scene in the United States. Um, I think that is a very interesting chapter of punk because uh, it wasn't the trailblazers of the 80s. Uh, it was sort of what comes next when you realize you have an infrastructure and you have a you have a vocabulary and a culture and a tribal history what are you going to do with it next uh and it happened at a really interesting time of global and local regional politics and an awakening of political issues like or or a a new way of seeing things like you know feminism and um uh, immigration rights and 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 health and gay rights (laughs) gay rights skateboards and um and it also was the last chapter of this multi-generational subculture before the internet. Um, which So that makes it a really interesting chapter of, of punk for me. Um, and it is interesting to the point that I love to work on a book about it for many years. However, <laughs> I'll be the first to admit I got horribly distracted. Um, I moved to California, partially hoping it would help me put my head down and really buckle it out. I would say I've been 89% done with this book for about two and a half years. Oh, that's so close. I know. I'm going to push through. I I, be, I took a job uh, between a year and a half, two years ago, 
working for a nonprofit called Courage to Resist, uh, which helps uh, GIs and American service people, men and women, who decide they uh, are going to refuse to fight in wars, especially the sort of wars our country is, is waging and has a history of waging. Um, and one of the soldiers we are involved with is uh, a soldier named Bradley Manning, who uh, is an army whistleblower. Uh, who passed a bunch of documents onto the media about war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. People will probably be familiar with him to some degree. Uh, but he is a huge, that is a big case, and it takes up a ton of time. And um, to be frank, I've never been involved in grassroots work that I've been paid for before. And I think I just, I have a certain old-fashioned Irish Catholic guilt work ethic to begin with. And when you tell me, this is not about mopping a floor, but it is about like a grassroots political thing. I feel like intense guilt about not giving a hundred million percent every day. So I have totally let the book slip. Because in addition to championing myself as a hard worker, I will also say I'm intensely <laughs> lazy outside of work. Uh, so the, anyway, I'm going to say it on record as a, as a means to stick it to myself and make me stay on it. I am aiming for this book to come out uh, roughly a year from today to coincide with June of 1994, which I, uh, the 20-year anniversary of what I consider to be a watershed year. Can you do June 9th? Because that's my birthday. Yeah, sure. I'll see what I can do. Yeah. There you go. Good. Great. <laughs> Mike, uh, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for doing the thing. Thanks, Joe.